I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. Uh, welcome, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you all on this windswept day, and look what the wind blew in today. Uh, uh, we have Jeff Furman from our neighbor, uh, neighboring uh, just, down the, just down Commonwealth Avenue. Uh, just down, just, just down, down the road. Just down the road you, from here. You can find me off an early morning at the Swiss Bakers right across the way. Yeah, and, and, and it's a great pleasure to have you here uh, to uh, talk about his paper with Florenta, who we will have on another occasion right. at some point. And, and I'm, uh, I'm your substitute today. Yeah. Florenta <laughs> is supposed to be your initial speaker. Let us, let us, let us. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and let's Please go around. Introduction. Yeah. I'm Jeff Furman from Boston University. Yeah, so uh, uh, Shane Greenstein in the TOM unit. Graham uh, Cohn uh, in the strategy unit. Uh, Natalia Wright, I'm the doctoral student strategy. And that's a full actual doctoral student strategy. I'm Amy Moo in strategy unit. Ariel Stern, DOM unit. Pardon. <laughs> Diane Williams, a computer scientist, entrepreneur, alumna of Sloan and Harvard. Dave Palmer from the Digital Initiative. Vahid Othepi from uh, Harvard Business Analytics Program. Stephanie Oliver from Baker Library. Dan Grossman from Technology Innovations Management. Jim Boren from Baker Library and the HBS IT Group. Um, Yosef Jung, PhD student in business economics. Thank you so much. My first statement is an apology that I am not Ferenta. Ferenta was the scheduled speaker. Ferenta appears to have a mental issue with her hand, which, is, while not uh, terribly debilitating, prevents her from flying. And so I've flown in as a replacement. And uh, we'll see how this goes. It's high midterm season for me, and so my preparations are much more limited relative to what I would have hoped is optimal. And so we'll see how this goes. You may end up getting refined a little bit of time in our discussion today. And another thing that I think is a useful place to start with on this paper is that there's a lot of different ways that we have thought about to frame this paper. The place that we started is with an interest in the, path, the research paths that uh, are taken in the pursuit of understanding new to the world innovations. So we're going to focus on scientists, particularly scientists in an area called motion sensing technology or computer vision and electrical engineering. And we're going to ask how a shock that affects something, and it would be worth debating what that something is, affects the breadth of their research agendas. Do they end up following one particular path? Do they follow a much broader set of paths and what we'll ask is whether this shock to technology availability, we're describing as a shock to the availability of information technology-based research tools affects the breadth of what they do. And one thing that's pretty clear about the shock that we're going to look at, the shock that we're going to look at is something called Connect. Connect is a video game system created by Microsoft that was created purely for the purpose of video entertainment. And very soon after it was introduced on the market, it was hacked. 
against the will of Microsoft. Microsoft fought back as much as they could. It was hacked far too quickly for them to prevent. And the hacks were distributed widely enough that many individuals were able to get access to the data that the Connect system provided. And Microsoft capitulated and said, fine, we'll open this up and we'll enable scientists who are not trying to profit from this to end up using the data and we'll let people work with this technology. So we see that we are convinced that there is some sort of a shock here. Exactly how to interpret how this, what this shock is and how it then affects subsequent researcher behavior is not something that I would hang my hat on. Even if I had more preparation today, I'd be very grateful <laughs> for the feedback line. Or a hat. Use a hat. I would have blown off my head today. I would be very grateful for ideas on how to think about what that shock is. The one thing that I'm really sure about with this shock is that it reduces the cost of doing motion sensing research. Prior to Connect becoming available, if you wanted to do motion sensing research, you'd have to spend $15,000 for a piece of equipment that would allow you to do what the Microsoft Connect then allows you to do for $150. So for sure, there's a shock to costs. And one way that we've interpreted that in this paper, we frame this as a shock to the availability of an IT-based research tool. And I'm sort of comfortable with that because when the cost of something is lower, the availability of that tool is greater, but you know, I'm not sure whether that's a stretch. So we'll see what you, what you end up uh, thinking about that. So, um, so here's the project in, uh, in a nutshell. We are overall interested in, well, let me see if this is the, I've gotten the right presentation. I have a couple of them all there. Yeah, okay, this is back there. <laughs> <laughs> so the general sets of questions that, uh, that I think uh, motivate this project are, what are the institutions and policies and other factors that affect the rate and the direction of science and innovation? Anyway, ever since the, 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 the uh, pioneering NVER publication in 1962 on the rate and direction of innovation, and ever since Solo and others interested in uh, and innovation have linked it to, to economic growth, people have cared about this topic. It turns out that innovation is important for economic growth. And a particularly large amount of work on this topic has focused on the factors that affect the rate of new knowledge production, the rate of innovation, and the rate of science. And here we're slightly more interested not in the rate, but in the direction. What paths do researchers pursue do researchers end up specializing, or do they work in a very broad area? Mapping what people work on in ideas space is inherently challenging. If we're trying to map where people are in physical space, we've got latitude and longitude. I guess we can figure out where they are in the universe. But when we're looking at things in ideas space, it's quite hard to do. The number of dimensions of ideas space is very, very hard to map. It changes over time. And so we don't have particularly ideal ways of measuring things in ideas of space, or even distance in ideas of space. How far is physics from sociology? There's a bunch of subtopics in physics that may be closer or further from sociology, and certain advances in sociology may enable it to move closer to physics. What we often do in thinking about direction is we're able to think not about the individual research paths or the branches of research paths that people follow, but we're able to say, some greater clarity how close or how far things are from what they were like in the past. How broad is Shane's research portfolio relative to his first set of projects? How close is Shane to me in idea space versus Ariel? Those things, overall breadth, we're a little bit better at doing. What I really love to be able to do is to talk about directions and paths. The best that I think we're going to be able to do here is talk about breadth and distance 
rather than be incredibly precise about how research tools affect the various paths that people are going to follow. So the specific questions that we're going to go after here is how did the introduction of Connect affect the rate of motion sensing research? That's really not the question that we're most interested in. It improves it when the cost goes down. You get more uh, research. That you know, seems pretty straightforward. But we're going to ask how this affects the concentration, the diversity, and then the direction that people follow. And what we're then going to ask is how does this differ from incumbents, that is the researchers who prior to Connect were already working on motion sensing research. And we go back and forth on the terminology in the paper, and I'm sorry about that. We'll sometimes refer to them as incumbents, sometimes we refer to them as within area researchers, and I'm not sure which term works out to be best. We're going to ask, how do those people who were experts in motion sensing research before Connect, how is their rate of research affected? How is the diversity of their research projects affected by the, by the advent of Connect? And then how does that differ for folks who were outside of motion sensing research at the beginning, who then select in to doing stuff related to motion sensing research later on, versus those who never do anything with motion sensing research? And one immediately obvious problem here is, it's totally unclear what the control group is. We sometimes use the, the, the terminology of a treatment group and a control group. But maybe the best thing that we would be able to do is to compare the intensity with which you were treated. We think there's something different about how the change in the research and the availability of a research tool affects those who are experts versus those who are not, versus those who will never end up entering. But, but the terminology is not, we don't have a, a great treatment and control in the, in the classical sense. Yeah? So I'm trying to rinse my head a little bit, and as I'm doing this, I'm thinking about another project that, that Abhishek Nagar has told me about that he's working on, where he's looking at basically, um, you know, a, a, as Lance has sort of in parts of the world, you know, there were those different geographies um, generating more research, you know, on like deforestation, environmental change, other things like that. And so I'm thinking, okay, in that case, um, it's data yeah. as opposed to the tool. So I'm thinking about, okay, you know, the production function, it's the cost of the input, if it, you know, in that case, versus the data is becoming much cheaper versus here. Right. The productivity of that data or something like that is becoming yeah. higher, right? Like, you know, basically, because of this tool, you can take the existing stock of data and, like, do more things with it, something like that. I'm trying to, like, you know, figure out that, that, that this, you know, if, if there's a distinction between, like, you know, the cost of data going down, as it's currently <coughs> happening for us, versus the tools becoming cheaper, you know, like we have state commands, can't state commands that we can use to run on these data. Right. So, I'm trying to, you know, keep in mind that that, that I guess this is more about the, the tool or the technology to like do the research as a mean, but yes. Right. So, I think here what goes on is that cost goes down. You can imagine a world in which a tool, tools to look into the heavens don't exist, or the tool, the microscope, microscope doesn't exist, so you can't see cells. So there, at no price can you possibly achieve the research ends that you're after. Here, there is some price at which you could do motion sensing research, and it goes from being really high to being low enough that any laboratory that has even a modest budget could do it. So I guess one way to think about this is when the price of the research tool is $15,000, you're only gonna buy that research tool if you're specifically interested in motion sensing research. But it's $150. Well, most research budgets have $150 lying around them. And you could shift to that. If it turns out that your graduate student is kind of interested in pursuing this, 
you know, she can request the money, and she ends up getting the money and then does some project here. Or even if the undergrad recently, the Europe student is interested for $150, you can then be able to pursue that. And so I think that's different from, there's, there's, no, there's a bunch of things we can't do, and now we have a particle accelerator, and now we can do it. So it's not that it goes from a price of infinity to, to, a, to, a, to an actual price. Here we're going from a price of a high magnitude to one of a relatively low magnitude. So then is there a way to think about this? Let's say just looking at the production function of the right model here. You have a model with complementary inputs where, you know, I'm just thinking like, like data and tool for processing data, where those things are right. complementary, right? And yeah. so this is a tool. The this data is a tool. aren't changing so much. Yes. Except that the tool creates much more data than you could collect a whole bunch of this data with other types of tools, but it would take much longer to be able to do it. Okay. And that's, I think, the sense in which we thought about this as a labor-saving tool, to, uh, an automation technology. A little bit like running regressions without, without SAS or without SATA. We could do it. Take a long time. <laughs> and then the experts in that area would be really sought after to work with other people. But maybe we can substitute away from those experts once we can all run SAS and say that. But what we don't have, and maybe this is a useful place for us to pursue things in the future, is a more valuable taxonomy for thinking about tools, what are the complementary inputs that go with particular tools, and come up with a good, with a more sound model for thinking about how this might matter. Um, okay, but well, seems like a useful, a useful question for us to, to go after. So some challenges that we have in this research project are what's the shock, and we're going to leverage the connect shock. And then the other challenge is how are we going to measure um, ideas in knowledge space? And the way that we're going to go, uh, the way that we're going to go about this is we're going to use some very, very simple measures of, of breadth, like how many different co-authors do you have, how, how many new co-authors do you have, how many new journals do you publish in, and then we're going to do some topic modeling. In, in, in ways that can be either extremely fancy or much less fancy. We'll end up finding the same set, the same um, nature of results, regardless of which of those we use. Um, was Connect yes, the first like motion sensing game on the market? Should I be concerned that this is like creating a big market for motion sensing games? Because that like demand change could also change. So, um, yes and no. Okay. And no. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. so, 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 the way in which Connect is, is new yeah. is it is the first controller available that you don't have to touch, that, re that allows the game to respond to human movements wherever they take place. So you would stand in front of, have any used this? You stand in front of the game and you could play tennis simply by going like this. And what, uh, what Connect can register is it will register main digits. It won't register whether you've folded your finger like this, but if you move your arm, it will get your elbow, it will get your hands, and it will get your, it will get your wrist. There were other video games on the market, and Xbox was responding to those. Nintendo had, had a, a motion sensing device where if you held the device in your hand and you swung it like a tennis racket, it would, it would track your movements uh, that way. So there's a massive market for the video games, and a much, much smaller market for the scientific tools. And the reason why the researchers never had a cheap motion sensing tool was that that market was way too small. And it was in fact so small that when Microsoft made the tool, they were completely unaware that there was a research purpose for that tool. It struck them as a, as a tremendous surprise. They were worried about hacking, but they weren't worried about that type of hacking. They were worried that you know, it would be reverse engineered and then 
and then somebody would, would improve upon it. So, all right, well, that's most of what the, what the paper does. Here's what we're going to find. We're going to find, and this is again not a surprise, when the motion sensing tool arrives, motion sensing research accelerates relative to a control that's not the most perfect of all controls. We'll, we'll assume it's a control. We're going to match up motion sensing researchers with those who are outside through CEM matching. We'll track the number of publications they had in the pre-period. We'll find that those who are closer to motion sensing research experience an increase in the rate of research they generate once the Connect tool comes around. <coughs> then we're going to find that incumbents in motion sensing, those who have been working in motion sensing before, branch out into different areas. And we'll identify those as people who have worked in areas that had keywords associated with motion sensing before the tool came out, and they branch out into new areas of research. So these are people who are motion sensing experts, then continue to do research in motion sensing, but they explore other topics that are more distant to those that they had worked on um, before. But the ones who really branch out are those who hadn't been working in motion sensing before, and then move into motion sensing research later on. Now the immediate response to this is, well, of course they've diversified. They had been working in outside of motion sensing, and now they have entered into motion sensing. So mechanically, they are more diverse in the research that they do. This turns out to hold even if we throw out motion sensing publications. So even if we then throw out all of the topics associated with motion sensing research, they seem more diversified in their home areas. Now, there's a couple of ways that we might be able to explain that. One is, we don't do a good job of picking up motion sensing research. And so in their home areas in which they don't have papers with motion sensing keywords, they're doing motion sensing work that we just can't pick up. And that's possible. What I think is neat about that is even if we can't pick it up that way, those are not topics that are in the domain of motion sensing research. What they're then potentially doing is maybe they were working on construction research and they're working on a broader set of topics within construction than they had been before. Now, that might be a pure mechanical motion sensing effect, but we, we, we think that it might not be. Okay, so the, 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 that second remark is surprising, but let me, let me map it into the first remark. Yes. So the first remark, if you told me uh, there's an existing industry, cost of production has just declined dramatically, yep. I'd say, oh, competition is going to increase in that industry. We're going to get a lot of new entry, yes. and the instinct of all existing producers will be differentiate. Yes, uh, and so, uh, the, and so, yeah. the, your first finding sounds like existing producers differentiate in order to protect rents. Yeah, and your second, at first, your second uh, finding sounds like new entrants use existing capabilities, which are differentiated by definition, right, and enter into those. Right, that, it's yes. right. That's what it sounds like. Yes, and then this last remark from you doesn't easily fit into that framing unless there's some sort of, I, I mean, to push the metaphor perhaps further than it ought to go, right. there's economies of scope and production between the one, in, there are two inputs, one input just became very, uh, you know, less, very low in cost, and the other one right. had its existing cost. But if there's economies of scope, you might still nonetheless expect um, a big change in differentiation as well, and a movement away even in the areas of are not related to it. But right. then that also should have happened to the incumbents. But the incumbents also should have diversified to the same degree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we don't see them diversifying to the and same you degree. We see them diversify, but not necessarily to the same degree. So, so, so an economy is a scope kind of 
explanation which seemed natural. Right. Yes. Seems so I think that's right, but I don't have a good explanation for why we see that differently in the um, home area. Right, that's the question. Of the yeah. But that will push. But you wrong. get the question. Yes. From the, exactly. Suggested by the metaphor. Yeah. There are fixed costs to changing what you're working on, right? And those fixed costs yeah. might be honest for you. I'm going to show you the entrance. I don't know. I'm oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say it one more time? If there are fixed costs to changing what you're research. Yeah. Uh, you know, those fixed costs may actually be incumbents more so I hate to push the metaphor because then it becomes very natural to talk this way. Yeah, a related version of that is that the entrants are just like the folks who are opportunistic. Like there might just be some researchers yeah. who are more willing to jump at new data sets. Like I think we all see this among our colleagues. Like there's some folks who are just like, oh, here's a like fun new data set that I can get for free. I read about this right. now. <laughs> like, Yes. Um. Yeah, then I guess the other thing I should note is that all of these people are writing before Connect and after Connect. So they're not de novo entrants. They're not people who hadn't been working on anything before or doctoral students. These are all people who had who had some research streams before, um, before and after. Okay, but that's very very helpful. Very helpful. Thank you. Okay, so you know how are we going to interpret these things? You know, the research cost reduction drives the expansion of the research field. Is it a research cost reduction that drives the diversity of incumbent researchers and entrants? Is it the availability of technology? The interpretation, I think, is something that, also, that, I, that I'm still trying to work out uh, along with. Uh, and I would be grateful for your, for your views here. To the extent there's novelty here, we think that some of it has to do with the interest in the direction of research, measuring the direction uh, of research in knowledge space, combining some of the um, more complicated tools for measuring direction and topic modeling with some much more simple, uh, simple measures and then we really do have these questions about, about interpretation overall. Okay, so what's our motivation? Some of the motivation makes perfect sense, I think, for this group. Automation reshapes economic activities across a variety of sectors with a whole bunch of different outcomes. Some are productivity, some are the level of employment, some is the organization of research. There's lots of benefits, but there's concerns about how automation is going to affect the, the, the workforce. We see that a bunch of the way in which Automation affects the workforce depends upon the context. If you have a wide discretion for the activities that you work on, it seems to be the case that you can shift away from those that are substituted out by the technology and into other things. Uh, in this context, I think uh, the work on ATMs is quite instructive. ATMs shift the productivity of banking, but also the nature of work that's done in banking. We have, I think, a bunch less research on how automation of uh, knowledge production affects work and knowledge production. And it seems like an interesting and different context because of the great degree of autonomy that researchers have on working on topics and on the way in which they go about doing uh, um, the way in which they go about doing their work. There is some, some work in this area. And so we're going to try and, and, uh, and, build, uh, and build upon that. We're going to have in the back of our mind a very poorly articulated model about about the knowledge production function, in which the knowledge production function involves a bunch of human capital and physical capital, and we are not going to fully articulate the differences here. We're going to focus on the research technology, and we'll then call on other research that highlights that research tools matter. And what we are attempting to figure out is how those research tools matter for the diversity of, of, uh, of knowledge created, but we don't have a formal model about it, and I don't even have the technology to think that through. And maybe that's a very, very useful thing to, um, uh, to do as we go forward. 
Um, why should we care about productivity and project choice? Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Stupid question. Um, is the technology behind Connect related to technology behind automation? Is that why you're interpreting that? So the way to think about the automation is that you could collect a whole bunch of this data in a bunch of different ways that are much more time intensive. You could do it through photography. I you could do yep. it through setting up multiple filming stations. And what the motion sensing system does is deliver a whole lot of that much more quickly and at much lower cost. But, but I do think that there's a tension between is it just costs? Is it just the production of data that you wouldn't otherwise have? Or is it really the automation of the research test? And the way that we think about it is that in the world in which the connect is cheap, it's going to save you a whole ton of, of effort relative to the world in which motion sensing is expensive. But, but that may be a, may be a distraction. Sorry, I didn't catch you. I'm Natalia. Natalia. I'm curious, how do you treat data in the knowledge production function, um, especially given kind of the unpriced nature? Here, we're not going to at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a terrific question. And, and building on, on, Dan's, uh, on Dan's point from before, yeah, I think it would be great to have a model of knowledge production that involves data and is much more fully specified on human capital and, uh, and, and research tools. And that's, we haven't gone in that direction. And if one of the outcomes of today's discussion is, well, actually, you kind of need to in order to understand what you're doing, that seems like a pretty good takeaway for us. But like, following up on Natalia's point, like, I wonder whether the biggest benefit from these Connect uh, access comes from like the technology per se. Yeah. And you might explain to us in what way helps researchers yeah. or just collecting data. So now Uber collects data on prices and transactions and so we can data we can do research on like right. a ride sharing that we couldn't do with taxis because we didn't right. have data. So I think that the way to think about Connect is that it doesn't vastly improve relative to the expensive way of coming up with motion sensing information, the type of information that you get. It just enables you to get that information at a lower price. I mean, but so, I could have gotten that information in taxi drivers. Like if I went to every single taxi driver yes. and asked them yep. how much, how many rides yeah. did you it do? It might not be as reliable as if you get it from, data, from Uber. Right? You can have sure. slightly higher data reliability. Sure. And maybe you get that here relative to setting up a system where you've got multiple camera angles. But is this the nature of the change? Because if this is the nature of the change, then I wouldn't call it technology per se, but maybe just data availability. I see. So the data are available at a lower price than they used to be before. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I guess so. Data. So data, the data production function has has now involved the detriment to costs. Yes. So. So should we think about that in, as as an automating technology, or is it kind of outside of the space of the automating technology? I don't know. The way I think about it is like collecting data was much more expensive before. Now it's much cheaper because somebody else is doing it for me right. and providing them for free. Yep. And so I can, like, the, 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 the result is the same, but the question is not about automation, it's about data access. Right. Now, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and call up. I don't know. But no, no, yeah. These are just debates that Florence and I have had a number of. Uh -huh. Is the reason that she keeps pushing me to, to interpret this as automation is well, there's lots of ways that you can end up coming up with data, 
One of it is you could do it on your own. Sure. You could crunch yeah. it on your own. And the other is you could use a tool that will automate that process for you. And I'm not sure whether that's just an issue of interpretation or whether there's a fundamental difference between a, decre a decrease in the price of data relative to an increase in no, automation. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, uh, what Kiara's point really matters is if you can automate it or do it very low cost, it allows you to get uh, uh, quantities of data or numbers of observations or dimensions of <coughs> Uh, single observations that you were previously unable to do, and that trend, that, and, right, and then yeah. that very different than your first interpretation, because right. your first interpretation was lower cost of something you were already doing, right. whereas this is enabling you to do something that was previously not possible. Yes, and that's then, true. And, and, okay. and then that actually does spin very differently. What's yeah. what you're so this was possible? It was just expensive. So. One way that like, I think maybe think it through is like, do you see the people with the high-end equipment going out and buying the Connect? Or are they like, I'm happy with the high-end Connect, whatever it is. Right. It's like, even, even with Uber example, yeah. even if I did every cab with a data collection system, Uber still just collects more and better data. Right. And so maybe that's a way to sort of get out whether this technology is actually changing something about the quality of the technology or really is just lowering the cost to collect yeah. it. Okay, that's an excellent question. That's something we can absolutely do. We know, so we know from the, from the um, from the abstracts, whether people are doing motion sensing and they historically not used Connect, they've been writing motion sensing forever, but then they start managing Connect at a different rate. So that we can check. All right, thanks. That's 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 uh, that's helpful. So one um, one other question is why do we even care about product project choices at all? Why should we care about the diversity of projects that people end up working on? Some of it I think is interesting for thinking about how you want to manage research-oriented organizations. Do you want people to be specialists? Do you want them to be generalists? Do you want people to move back and forth? And is that going to affect your rate of knowledge production? And the research that's in the sort of economic growth literature in this focuses exactly on the relationship between the rate at which knowledge accretes and the direction that's explored. And the idea that, uh, that Daron and Kevin um, and Brian have is that if you limit your exploration to a narrow set of areas, you may end up missing the things that you might have learned had you expanded out further, and that's going to slow down the rate at which you learn things. The example that's most often used in this context is if it turns out that fossil fuel companies and electric utilities focus all of our research efforts on improving fossil fuels and not improving green technologies, that may slow the rate at which we discover new technologies. This is more likely to occur in the for-profit cases, what, what, um, what Jerome argues, because you want to continue exploiting paths that you have already been successful on. Kevin then argues that this might not be nearly as bad a problem in the context of academic research as it is in the context of for-profit research. And so perhaps academics are also more like are more likely to expand out into broad areas. So that's what's going on, maybe looking a little bit where the light is by choosing this particular context. But there's also reasons why academic researchers might not explore the full breadth of, of research ideas. Some may be the cost of research tools. Some may be that senior people block your path and they tell you that you should only work on these particular topics. And if you work on a topic that's particularly new, it's not going to get published in the journals because it you know, doesn't agree with what Furman said. And Furman's a jerk of an editor, and he won't end up publishing it. <laughs> so there's some reasons that, that, that academic researchers might not move into other areas. And, um, and uh, Kyle Meyer points out that 
just providing financial incentives for researchers to move across topics doesn't get the job done. And so we'll explore here whether not providing financial incentives to move across topics, but providing the opportunity by virtue of having low-cost research tools, whether that changes um, the extent to which people work in different areas. And uh, thanks to Reverend for pointing out that's something that we should highlight to a greater extent in the, in, uh, in the project. All right, and one other reason to, to potentially look at this is trying to figure out how to measure ideas, uh, uh, ideas in knowledge space. We're, we're, we're exploring here whether these new topic modeling tools are something that can help us um, uh, to explore the dimensions of, uh, of uh, knowledge creation. And for better or worse, we're going to come up with a whole bunch of new tools, and then we're going to find that in most cases, they're in agreement with the old tools, which are much more simple and much easier to interpret. You will find that I will stumble in interpreting some of our measures, and then there's some that I won't stumble over because they're really straightforward. But they're going to end up saying the, basically the same, the same sets of things, and you know, I don't know how to explain that to our research assistants. So, um, okay, so I guess a few words on, um, on motion sensing research. Motion sensing research is not a field in the classic sense that biology is a field. Motion sensing research is a collection of different areas that do work on topics in computer science and electrical engineering. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can monitor uh, the way in which things move. You can do it with optics, you can do it with sound, you can do it with radio, you can do it with vibration, you can do it with magnetism. So there's a breadth of people who are interested in these topics, and they won't all be in the Department of Motion Sensing Research. They can be distributed across engineering schools, they can be distributed across a whole wide range of, uh, of different areas. It's generally seen as a subfield of computer science, also often called computer vision. And what the folks do at the intersection of research and practice is that they'll create devices and algorithms that will capture information from the various devices that monitor, uh, that monitor movement and then identify where things are in space and over time. So a lot of work is focused on the development of algorithms and cameras. Some of this work touches on robotics and artificial intelligence, and then also facial, um, facial recognition. I don't know if I, want to, if I want to click on all of these links, but here's a few examples of what, of what, uh, of what this work might do. So, so fundamental research is on perception and brain function, watching how people move, particularly under certain conditions of of disturbance of the brain, or, uh, or if you affect what they can see, you can learn about fundamental human uh, physiology, you can learn about arthropod hairs with very fine-grained measures of, of, uh, of motion. And then you can have some very, very applied areas like home security. If someone is walking in front of your house and that someone doesn't look like someone who lives in the house, well, that might be bad. It might also be good. It might be that Amazon Fresh has finally brought your, your, your food. <laughs> But, but those are some of the applied, um, applied areas. One of the interesting projects is done by uh, folks at the Media Lab at MIT with automatic fall detection. So you can set up a system in the house that will notice if the resident of the house has fallen over. Or even predict when they are likely to fall over based on their movements um, beforehand. You can also use these applications in things like remote surgery and, interestingly, in construction. You can watch <coughs> how the building moves, whether there's a chance it's going to you know, fall over. Why do you have a picture of Florence Henderson? <laughs> um, she, I think, was, oh, look at that. I don't know what I just done or how to stop it. But, um, Florence, oh, um, Florence Henderson was advertising for one of these fall detection technologies. Oh, oh. <laughs> 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 
So here's an example of a, a motion sensing research paper. And the one feature of this that's really worth pointing out is that this shows up at the 34th Annual International Conference of the IEEE EMBS. A lot of the research that's produced in motion sensing occurs in conference proceedings. And so if we end up using data from the web of science, we'll get some of it, but not all of it. And so we draw our data from the IEEE. It has great, some great features and some fairly frustrating features for what we're after. But here's an example of location, time to contact maps for navigation with a low resolution visual prosthesis. We've got, got an eye, and we're trying to make that eye work as, as, uh, as much as possible. So we could go through a whole bunch of these different uh, uh, examples. I've just uh, screen captured uh, a whole bunch of them, a motion sensing mechanical uh, keyboard. A, an ultra low power human body motion sensor using static electric field sensing. There's multiple technologies that are going to be a part of, of, uh, of motion sensing, of motion sensing research. And so motion, the field of motion sensing research is going along, achieving what it's able to achieve, and then Microsoft introduces the Kinect gaming system. Here's the Kinect, it's got a microphone, it's got a motorized tilt, it has 3D depth uh, sensor cameras, and an LED to let you know that it's on, and, and microphones on either side. The microphones can tell you, as well as the street, the, uh, the, uh, the sensors, how close you are, how far you are, and you know, very exciting. If you want to play soccer in your basement with a five-year-old kid, it's a great way to go. You can't really do it anymore because they discontinued it. It turned out not to be profitable. But, <laughs> but, it, but it was on the market for, for, uh, for a good seven years before that happened. Here is the, is the competing device. This is the Wii that Nintendo introduced, and the Wii looks very much like this. Uh, the Wii controller looks very much like this, uh, this, uh, this clicker device here, and that could also track movements, but it couldn't track movements divorced of the, of the human uh, holding it. So there's, there's, a, there's how, how Microsoft wanted to advance. So the product was released on November 4th, 2010. A bunch of hackers from MIT who started a company called Adafruit said, hey, you know what? We'll pay $1,000 if somebody can hack this and release the drivers. And yeah, it worked. Microsoft initially fought it, but only six days later, an open source driver was, was uh, created. And Microsoft capitulated. And in January 2011, and only two months later, they're all in, and they've introduced their own, their own driver. So it's a surprise. The prior technology cost between $20,000 and $50,000 and $20,000. And Connect then costs $150. And it gets a little bit lower uh, after that. So we've emailed with some of the researchers in this area and said it's incredibly powerful. $200 is $0 for a research lab, while $2,000 and $20,000 are $2,000 and $20,000 a lot of money. It's not a lot of money for the motion sensing researchers, but if you were thinking about incorporating motion sensing research into what you do and you're not a motion sensing researcher, then you're less likely to be able to. Uh, but in any case, if you, if you don't have one now, you're going to have to buy it. Use this so I'm going to track a Finnish uh, author to show how, so this is a Finnish author who had previously published just in motion sensing research. And then after Connect, uh, uh, Mr. Pekinen moves into a bunch of different areas. One new area that he moves into is agriculture and biological sciences. So now using motion sensing research, he comes up with a malaria diagnostic tool based on computer vision screening and, and visualization on using digitalized blood smears. That is a new area. 
that presumably is, is, uh, is possible as a consequence of, of, uh, of connect. He also moves into neuroscience using demographic classification from face videos, uh, using manifold uh, learning. He moves into medicine, because again, all the same person peeking in. The identification of tumor epithelium and stroma and tissue microarrays using texture analysis. So this was an individual who previously had been an expert in just motion sensing and now begins to branch out into a bunch of different other, uh, other domains. All right, I think we yeah. Sorry. To what extent is that a trend of any type of research? So you first focus on the basic research on a particular technology and then yep. you look for applications. Is this sort of an evolutionary experience within motion sensing research? Yeah. But no, that isn't necessarily related that to just this other... it's, That's a hard hypothesis to, uh, to refute. The thing that would, I guess, have to be true is that, it, that there's a huge kick in, the, in that pattern of behavior as of January 2011. If it turns out that, the, that Microsoft introduced in the Kinect is coincident with the prospect of these types of changes in motion sensing research, then we could be identifying the wrong thing. We could be loading general, this onto an explanation of, of the Kinect when it could just be that was the direction that motion sensing research was going. But in general, is like research in a particular field following this type of trend? So sort of oh. basic research on a technology and then applications? Hmm. I just don't That's know. an interesting question. Like, so if we ask uh, Sam Zions, who's doing her dissertation on CRISPR-Cas, yeah. she'll say, yeah, it does tend to happen. You okay. start off with individuals who are expert on the tool, and then they begin to import that tool into a whole series of other domains. Yeah. First, you have to understand how CRISPR-Cas9 works. And then once it's been understood in the very narrow context in which it was discovered, then it's going to branch out into a whole series of other areas. And I guess that's why it's interesting for us to consider how it's done differently by the incumbents versus the entrance. But it is possible, and I guess we should acknowledge this more fully, that the, the arrival of the Connect tool is coincident with exactly this type of phenomenon. And maybe Connect arrives at exactly the time that, that the changes in the field are going to occur. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do for our analysis is we're going to do a differences and differences analysis where the year in which connect occurs is going to matter at time. We're going to ask about the rate, but then most importantly the diversification of researcher I in year T, and we'll plot that as a function of the extent to which they're a treated researcher, and the treated researcher, I urge everyone to take a grain of salt because it's not a classic uh, treatment, cross after effect, and then we're going to throw in a bunch of additional fixed effects, some having to do with age, some having to do with the researcher, some having to do with, with, um, with time. So it's a classic differences and differences with the frustrating problem that all of the researchers are affected at exactly the same time. And we're going to argue that some are more affected and some are less affected, and we'll use an intensity of treatment effect. I'll show you what those uh, results look like. They look pretty similar to those. Uh, don't use the intensity of treatment effect. But that's going to be our, our, uh, our our approach to answering this question. We're going to just start off by identifying motion sensing fields prior to connect, and that's what we're going to use as an anchor to identify people who we think of as the incumbents versus, uh, versus the entrance. Then we're going to compare the impact of connect on the incumbents versus the entrance versus those that never enter at all. 
And those that never enter at all are going to be our control set. Okay? Is T, uh, are you entering this you know, at a year level? Is T a year? Yes, T is going to be a year. Is there an issue here? So, so I'm trying to figure out how interpretation is measured. So is this going to be measured just off of people who are uh, published papers in a year? Yes. Most people? Yeah. Well, it's not going to be most people. It's going to be most people that, we'll, that we will base the sample on. So we're going to end up choosing for the sample only those individuals who published before and after and who published more than three papers over the time period. And the way that this is, so there's problems with this. The thing that I think is useful about this is that we're not including graduate students who show up and disappear. We're not including Europe students who are just there briefly. We don't get PIs, which is what we would ideally like to have, but we think that, that, that selecting on published before and after and published multiple times in the sample is, is a reasonable way to go to identify those people who are continue working. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. That means you have the higher productivity researchers that are going to be generating. Yes. The identification here on the lower productivity. Yes. No, that's a good point. No, but that is a good point. If you only publish three times, a paper outside of your area is going to be much more dis likely to be distant than if you published 100 times. You've or already you, covered a year. You know, if you publish yeah. a paper in a year, your representation is zero, yes. right? Or, you know, whatever you're doing, Herkendall, it's going to be one. Yeah. I don't know if you keep those people. People publish two. You know, basically, the amount yeah. of variance there would be in the, in the Herkendall type measure depends on how many yeah. papers you have in the first place. Right. So we should certainly be able to show you what this looks like if the threshold is not three, but yeah, five, sure. or seven, or if it's just, just one. When we use everyone, you lose a lot of people because they don't do the before and after. Um, but that's a very good point. If these people are in mostly electrical engineering, they have just such a different publishing schedule from like economics or mm -hmm. something else. Right. That it would be good to have a grounding, though. Yes. Yeah. And I'll show you a little bit of what the publication counts look like, but still that's a very good point. But Shane, you would do something Yeah, maybe you're going here, but um, so, so maybe this is premature. Um, on, on the incumbents versus entrance margins, I think I understand what you're doing. On the entrance versus non-participant margin, yeah. this seems like there's a potential endogeneity there in that there can, researchers can vary in an unobservable propensity to diversify. Yes. And Yes. And, and so self-select into the entrant category goes. Yep. Right. And then And that, that's I think part of what Ariel was suggesting before, yeah. but you're saying it in a much more formal and correct. Yeah, correct and so way. you would I mean one formal test of that would be their diversification prior. Yes. But that's not quite right because it's still it's that's yeah, this that propensity will be unobservable in a lot of respects. Right. Especially because you only have a pre-period of four years, 2007 right. to 2010, and a post-period of 2011 to 2014. We will match on prior diversity, but I fully agree that what's going on is that there's a set of people who are more likely to try new things and become diversified, and that's what's driving these results. We're not going to be able to separate out that explanation. But that will be that will be exactly consistent with the results that we get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I guess to the extent that diversity heterogeneity is time fixed in a short period of time, you can do possible test by varying the after connect variable to turn on at different time periods and right. see whether it goes oh, yeah. similarly or not. Right. That's true. And I guess the other thing we can do is we can choose 
we could, we could stratify the sample or use certain samples based on those who are mo not just are you ma ma not just matching on pre-period diversification, but looking only at the most diversified early on, least diversified in the pre-period, mm -hmm. to see whether those differences turn out to be, to be the same. It's just funny, I was thought you were going to have an entry equation. Yes. Although it requires a population of, knowing the whole population of potential entrants to do that. Yes. Yeah. Although we kind of did. But you kind of did, yeah. Right. So I thought you were going to sort of have, have this sort of two-step thing. That's partially what I was asking. Right. I see. Right. Okay. You can have an entry yeah. equation, yeah. become a uh, propensity to enter or not enter. Yeah. And then conditional on that, you can do a, uh, you know, your classic selection. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. That's a very good idea. Okay, thank you. Okay, then the other thing that we're going to do, and uh, uh, as Ramak pointed out in our virus version, we could talk forever about this, about what tools we actually use to do the topic modeling. I'll do it relatively quickly, although I'm happy to go into greater detail. So uh, you mentioned earlier the contrast between what's happening here in the academic setting and what's happening in the private sector. Yeah. And I think either with, you know, an analysis within the private sector or comparing that to what's happening here would really be like phenomenal. And I'll give you an example of like, the, uh, the segment I'm thinking of. So if you look at like facial recognition, like identification technology, mm -hmm. it's primary, like the research on that at, at the time is primarily backed, I think, by basically national security interests. Yeah. And so like there's a fairly, like, fairly narrow, narrow segment of like private sector government contractors that get a fixed research budget annually to basically do identification technology. So for example, like my father's a, works as a government contractor and they're the primary contractor for the TSA. So, <laughs> You guys are, appreciate all the value creation there. <laughs> um, and then, no, but I mean, the thing there is there's no, it's not really any major incentive to actually change the direction of the innovation. Right. The only That's goal there is to incrementally do identify this person as being this person, which right. actually turns out to be a huge national, national security flaw, but right. uh, we actually can't do it very well. Right. But they're be very, very narrow, and I think it'd be a great right. contrast against the, the spreading that you're going to see here. Right. No, That's a very, very interesting question, especially if we look at that. At facial recognition in the private sector and facial recognition in the, in the academic yeah. sector, even if we're just looking at publications among them. One of the limitations of the IEEE data, so one of the great things about the IEEE data is it's wonderfully curated in some ways and terribly curated in others. It's wonderfully curated at the level of author identification. It have a unique author identification number, which is pretty good. Sometimes it's not perfect, but it's much better than Web of Science. What they do an awful job of is they don't identify the institutions that the authors are associated with. And so what we have to do in order to do that is we have to link up the author names without other identifying information to the web of science data in order to be able to get affiliations. And we would probably lose Andy Wu. <laughs> we, might, we, we might keep Rembrandt coming. <laughs> but, but names that are more likely to be common, we might have a much tougher time on. Um, so I mean, you have to do it. Basically, these firms do file patents. There's no gag order on this particular technology, so these oh, yeah. contractors do file patents on this technology. Right. Yeah, so we do it patents as well. That's okay. Yeah, we haven't done this analysis on patents. And, and by the way, there actually is a performance measure in the private sector. It's whether or not you get the contract. Huh. <laughs> it, it's fuzzy, but for the same argument. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's very, very good. 
Okay, so um, so I guess this is a spot that, we'll, that I can talk briefly about the topic modeling that we're going to do. So there's a bunch of different topic modeling techniques that will help you figure out what topics your text is going to be a part of. We have the advantage that the IEEE identifies 51 basic areas and classifies the research in their uh, publications into one of those 51 areas of, of uh, electrical engineering and computer science. And they actively monitor that, and they're the ones who input those codes. It's not the authors who are inputting those codes. But what they don't do is they don't change them very much over time, and they didn't change them at all over the time period that we were looking at. So the advantage of the IEEE is that it's curated topics. The downside is they're static topics. What the machine learning algorithm for unsupervised topic modeling can get you with either the LDA algorithm or the HDP algorithm is it will take your text, and here we analyze the abstracts, and it will use the terms in those texts and create a series of topics for you. The LDA algorithm, you have to feed it the number of topics. If you tell it, choose 90 topics, it will cut the data into 90 different topics, and for every paper, we'll assign a probability that it's in one of those topics. In HTTP, it'll let, it, the algorithm will choose the number of topics on its own. So that's the one that we go with. And excitingly, the number of algorithm topics, the number of topics the algorithm chooses is 50. <laughs> so it turns out to be extremely close to what the IEEE has come up with. What we haven't uh, done, and we probably should do, is match how closely those, yeah, those things overlap with each other. We haven't done that. But it is funny that it ended up being 50. We then create uh, versions of this with 40 topics through LDA, and 50, and 60, and 90. It takes forever to run the data, which is why we do it just on the abstracts rather than the full text. The results tend to be the same no matter which way we end up doing it. But as Ron and I also discussed, if we play with this stuff enough, we can get whatever results we want. <laughs> oh, no, I, I will confess that, that you know, yeah. if we mess with this in enough different ways, we can get, we can get a whole bunch of different things. So the methods that are, that are a little bit harder to, to, uh, to jury ring are the number of, uh, of uh, new keywords, the number of new journals, and the number of new co-authors. And in the results for today, I'll, I'll just focus on the number of new journals and the number of new co-authors as other indicators of how broad this research ends up becoming. So I think I've already pointed out what, uh, what the IEEE database looks like. It includes academic publications, early access publications, and conference proceedings. And it really has a ton of different conference proceedings. There are 18, uh, 1,800 different conference proceedings. Lots of, lots of, of uh, different conferences. The full data set goes from 2001 to 2014. We could probably add uh, uh, new years now. It's got 20, uh, 51 different categories of publications, and, and we rely on that for one of the methods of thinking about how diverse the research is. Anything like a ranking? Doesn't have, so we can look at citations. Another feature is we can know the citations that each of these have. So we could, for each of the conference proceedings, compute the average number of citations yeah, that we did those conference proceedings. But, but because the diversification tips. Yeah. yeah. Speaking from experience, when I diversify, it's into low-quality journals. <laughs> uh, so, That's a great point. You know, diversification into low-quality is rather different than diversification into high-quality. That's right. Okay. Yeah. At the extremes, anyway. Right. 
Which yeah. I think raises, because you said diversification was yeah. like positive from the beginning, yeah. okay. right? And I think that raises a question of like, are they just doing sort of like kind exactly. of mediocre on the margin research when they should have just been pushing on that one dimension? That yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly right. where it's going. That, that is an excellent point. point. I mean, we'll show that when they, when that the people who diversify have higher citations, but that's just a, that we think of that as the production of research. They have more publications and they have more citations, but but we don't but we don't rank the journals by the average citation that they receive to find out whether diversification does in some way improve knowledge production or or just represents a flight to low quality. <laughs> Differential. <laughs> <laughs> the other funny thing is there's a slide at the end, one of my favorite slides in this presentation, is that this paper is brought to you by the phenomenon that it purports to study, which is we are taking advantage of low-cost machine learning algorithms to do something slightly different in strategy and innovation research and digitization research than had been than had been done before. And, and so from the standpoint of introspection, it's to Shady's question. Maybe it is a lower quality version of what we just done. We'll see. We'll find us. Introspection is fun during somewhere. So, uh, so what we get from the IEEE that's good is we have wide coverage in the field that we're interested in. We get the title, the abstract, and we could work with the full text. We also know that the identities of the authors, but we don't know what universities or, or research centers they're, um, they're affiliated with. And we could theoretically match with the web science, but the web science isn't going to have the same number of conference proceedings. But we can still replicate that once we, once we buy the entire web science data and then, and then merge it together. Um, overall, the data set has, has 2.5 million publications. The 2007 to 2014 has more than 1.3 uh, million uh, uh, publications. And we're going to distinguish these researchers the way that we've described before. There's 100,000 researchers who ever do something with motion sensing research in it. The ones that we're able to usefully match is only about a quarter of those. And I'll describe how we end up doing the matching in, in, uh, in just a moment. There's about 23,000 researchers who end up entering into the, into the sample that we ultimately use. Seems like a lot. It's a pretty large number of. Uh, of, uh, of people. So maybe that our motion sensing definition is a pretty big catch-all um, <coughs> catch item. Um, here are the motion sensing words that we've used to identify people that we placed in the pre-period as motion sensing researchers. If they have used any of these terms, motion sensing, motion tracking, motions tracking, motion recognition sensor, you can end up reading, uh, reading these time of flight cameras, which is one of the main technologies used before Connect, RGBD camera, Connect 3D cameras. So that that set of researchers who ends up uh, here, those are the uh, the ones who at any point in time end up using any of these terms in, in the research that they've done. Or rather, sorry, who end up doing it prior to 2010, and then this group here is those who end up using them prior to or after 2010. All right. Um, so. Sample is retrieved. I think that the best way to go is to go now exactly to. It's not just North America, it's all over the place. Yes, yeah, it's around the world. Yeah, it's around the world. So here's how we do our, our matching we're going to match on pre connect period features, the annual count of publications, the annual count of co authors, the diversification of research topics, and then something about whether you're either in motion sensing beforehand. If you're in, we're going to match you with the folks who are out. If you are out, 
will try and match you based on how far out you are. Are you out but you have a co-author who's in? Are you out who has a co-author who has a co-author who's in? Or are you not one of those? And so we'll use that also to match, uh, to match people, uh, to make sure that they're not matched with people who are in the exact same category that, uh, that they are. And we're going to use the whole set of individuals who fit into these categories to be matched, not one-to-one -one matching. Mm -hmm. Just sure. a, maybe a stupid question, but like the 51 categories that Triple uh, Triple uses, yes. there's no such category as motion sensing. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah, there's no motion sensing. Okay. <laughs> motion sensing ends up showing up in a whole bunch of those okay. things. Okay. So now this is, I should apologize in a very specific way for the set of slides you are now about to see, consistent with my putting these together under time pressure. You're basically going to see a bunch of cuts, cutouts from the paper. And then I will highlight some features of those, but they're not the most elegant of, of, uh, of, of empirical slides that you'll end up, that you'll end up seeing. So here's our descriptive statistics. Um, the, the highlight here is that when we look at the full sample of the, of the data, the treaties, the ones that end up work, working in motion sensing, they produce more, uh, more papers that have higher citations in the pre-period uh, than, than do those that are in the controls. So it's a rich area of research in the, in the, uh, the pre-period. The number of citations go down as a consequence of, uh, of uh, truncation. But the pre-period uh, full sample folks are more productive than those who are not. That's not true in the, in the matched sample. The pre-period is also slightly more diverse than, than the full sample. Um, but that's not true for the, for the matched sample. And that's all right. what I was showing you here were those who were the incumbents, those who published in motion sensing before. The same patterns are true for those who are outside area researchers, the entrants who come in and do motion sensing research. The matching works nicely, but we do lose a lot of, of observations in order to get, uh, in order to get the matching to work. We go from 1.3 million authors down to 158,000 of those who are matched with the with the outside area researchers, the ones who enter. It's not just that you lose observations; it's that you end up in a part of the X space that's quite removed from other parts that are, you know, you previously were seeing a lot of observations in. Yes. Right, right. And, I mean, because the numbers are changing so much. Right. So the support's uh, been narrowed quite right. a bit. Yes. And so you would worry that you're getting an inference in the match sample about just what's happening there. Right. But, you know, you're not necessarily being, you have to presume, let me say yeah. it that way, you have to presume whatever you're observing there extends into the other uh, Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, not, that, not that you, you know, you're not the first researcher to see that, but it's, right. <coughs> it's a little worrying because, boy, it really does change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, you know, you're losing, you know, if those are, if those are means, you're still losing the long tail, right? You're focusing in on the middle. The True, right. Yeah. 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 It's ambiguous how it will be actually true. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's but it's true. certainly important to know. Um, okay. Sorry. sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe you mentioned it. What are the biggest reasons why your treatment group more than half is cut more than by half? Oh, um, why the treatment group is cut more than yeah. half? So you um, go from like 76,000, yeah. like, yeah. or 100,000 to 26,000. Researchers, um, the biggest differences like, why can't are you on find the pre-period counts of publications. Because the pre-period publication count is so different from those who are treated versus the controls. But that's the ones that we end up losing. We end up losing the most productive researchers in the pre-period. 
I don't know if that's good or bad. But it does speak to the possibility that Dan's worry that we've got too sparse a data set. And so, so we could worry that this is not conservative because we're relying on smaller numbers of pre-period publications so that small changes in diversification look larger than they otherwise might. Mm -hmm. That I think is absolutely that's the point that's worth that's worth noting. Because one one basically one paper can shift through the presentation measure. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You might also be I mean, I'm not sure this is right, but you might also be throwing out these labs that have, you know, eighty five graduate students in them. And so yeah. In effect, because by throwing out the big, the high end yes. tail, how else do they get that way? They, right. There are these the massive production. Yeah, products. the massive labs and the senior author puts their name on, on the, you know, the last yes. name on the lots, lots of papers. Yeah. Uh, yes. Those are all good points. Okay. Um, so. Uh, as always, the key results that we'll find in the complicated regression analyses are also evident in the simple descriptive statistics. So you know, we, cut, we cut things short <laughs> by, just, by just relying on those. The, in the, in the pre-period, we've got for those who are, um, um, for the full set of researchers in, who had been working on motion sensing before, there's slightly more publications among those who are outside of motion sensing relative to those who are in. In the post period, you get more publications, slightly more among the incumbent researchers relative to those controls. When we're comparing the uh, researchers who enter into motion sensing versus their controls, there's no difference in their publications in the pre-period, but there's a much larger difference in the post period. So those who enter, and this could be consistent with Shane's theory that these are the, you know, the busy bees of the world, they enter because they have propensity to try new topics, and they're the most eager, and they're the most successful. That's been completely possible. Uh, uh, but we'll, we will see that those are the ones who end up uh, having the greatest use in publications. And if the, if the matching doesn't solve for that problem, then, then we can't distinguish those results. If the matching does do a good job of saying if you diversify beforehand, then you're matched on, on that dimension. And so what we see afterwards is, is the results of the, of the treatment of Connect rather than, than this unobserved feature. But I think this does, does speak to the fact that we should check for different levels of diversification in the pre-period whether this ends up holding. Um, but in any case, that's the, so that's the sort of main effect. We see that effect even exacerbated to a greater degree when we weight the public count by citations. That's not getting at the question of whether you're moving into lower quality areas, but there's both publication and impact that goes up for the outside area researchers uh, at entrance relative to their controls and for the, incum the incumbents in motion sensing relative to, um, to the controls. We'll also see these effects in diversification. We see an increase in diversification among the treated researchers. These are the ones who have been working on motion sensing before, but larger than the positive change in the number of topics that control researchers are working on. So here what we've got is the HDP, which is the number of top, uh, topic modeling approach. If we look at only the set of topics that people had worked on previously, we see that within motion sensing, there is an increase 
in the number of motion sensing topics that the motion sensing researchers work on. If we think about topics where motion sensing had not shown up before, we get an increase in the motion sensing topics that is slightly greater than the controls for those who have been working in motion sensing in the, in the past. This effect is greater again among the entrants relative to those who, uh, who have worked in motion sensing before. And this is true regardless of how we're going to end up measuring the, the topics, um, the topics that, uh, that, that they work on. Let's see. That's the right, the right set of things to end up showing at this point. So the regressions are going to end up showing us the same thing that the descriptive models show us. So what I've got uh, here for you is the estimated changes in total publications using the outside area researchers, those who enter into motion sensing research, then the outside area researchers throwing out all of their motion sensing papers, and then the incumbents who had already been working in motion sensing research before. After Connect, controlling for what we can uh, control for, and using this sample that's matched on observable characteristics in the pre-period, we see an increase in publications. So this is just the rate of, of new knowledge creation of around 65% for the outside area researchers, those who enter. And when we throw out motion sensing papers from the sample, and we look just at their increase in publications in areas that are not motion sensing, they increase by 36%. Now that could be measurement error. It could be that these are motion sensing papers in their own area that we're not picking up. It could also be that there's something inspirational about having worked with motion sensing that allows them to find new applications in their own area. Um, for those who have already been working in motion sensing research, uh, they end up with a slightly uh, smaller, well, much smaller increase in the amount of publications that they create, but they also get a boost in, pub uh, in publications as a consequence of, uh, of, of Connect. One more thing. So you, you have the 50 um, areas that potentially somebody could have come from. Yes. Right? So. Um, and potentially could move into, yeah. right? You have, so yeah. when, when you, right, it works in both directions. Yep. So when you see the, uh, the second finding that even outside of the motion sensing, they're moving into new areas, right. you could check whether the area in which they move is the same one or a different one than the area that they moved into in their motion sensing work. Because yes. if it's the same yes. area, that's, that's right. consistent with the economies of scope right. explanation yep. in the new mm -hmm. areas. If it's different, it's something like, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, it's something right. like their motion censoring papers didn't take as much time, so they had more time left for <laughs> 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 I mean, it's a, it's a weird explanation. <laughs> yeah. so, I don't quite know how right. to. So right, are they moving into, say, they had been previously neuroscience researchers doing right. not motion sensing. They move into motion sensing in, in neuroscience? Are they moving into motion sensing in construction? And are they moving into construction, construction without, without, without things too. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yes. That seems very, yeah, that seems very <laughs> right. verifiable, right? That's yeah. yeah, that's a really nice idea. All right, thank you. That's something that will, that will, um, that will end up doing. Oops. Okay. So um, here I showed you, uh, I showed you this for, um, for the total number of publications they create, and here I'm showing you that by citations weighted, uh, uh, citation weighted publication counts.
results end up being the same. All of this, uh, I really could go through every single one of these in excruciating detail, but, but I think a better, a better way to do it is actually to, to, uh, to, 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 to choose which ones to look at. So now what we're looking at is I've stopped showing you rate. I'm going to now show you diversification, something more akin to direction, though not the ideal direction that I would like to be able to show, the direction that we're, that, we're, that we're mostly able to show. You get an increase after connect among entrance into motion sensing of around 2.37 new topics out of the 50 that the HDP has identified. It seems like a pretty large number that they're ending up uh, moving into. And an increase of 1, uh, 1.8 topics when we're measuring things that, that they had never, uh, had never worked on before. And if we do this with, with the Herfindahl measure based on the IEEE taxonomy, they're increasing their topics by 32%. All, any way we end up measuring these things, we're seeing some increase in diversification. That increase in diversification is greater for the entrance than it is for the, for the incumbents. This is a picture that shows us the exact same things on year-to-year -year level. We don't see much of a change before Connect. We see a big jump uh, after Connect. This is true for the entrance, even if we throw out those motion-sensing publications. And I, I think going through this is, is going to end up being, being modestly painful. Um, so, so I won't do it. The, I'll say that uh, if we do an intensity of treatment effect among those in motion sensing, and we identify those who had a high fraction of motion sensing publications before versus a lower fraction, we see that the more intensely you published in motion sensing before, the greater the effect is. Which I think seems slightly strange, since we see the big effect among the entrants, but we also see among those who are already inside that this effect is greatest among those who were most focused in motion sensing before. And those might not, and those results might not uh, end up matching, um, matching theoretically. All right. So I think rather than going through, through all of these, well, it was very nice to put all this various stuff together. I'll show you one one other piece of evidence that is in no way causal. There's no regressions here. This is, and it's a completely different data source. Scopus, as it turns out, unlike the IEEE and unlike Web of Science, has a really nice tool for visualizing the set of topics on which people work. So Scopus is another data set that, that characterizes publications. And you can call up uh, individuals, and for those individuals, get nice graphics about what the different topics are that they ended up working on. So here's an example of someone who was a motion sensing researcher before Connect, and they worked mostly in uh, engineering, some in earth and planetary sciences, some in physics and environmental sciences. but. This will also illustrate Dan's concern. After Connect, they work in a whole bunch of different areas. But if you can see the numbers here, you'll see that this is based on a relatively small number of total publications. They have 75% in engineering, 25% in environmental sciences, 25% in physics, 12% in earth and planetary sciences, and that, that doesn't add to 100 because <laughs> some of these are in multiple topics. <laughs> but you can see by the fact that they're based on you know, 5 and 12 that, that this is a small number of game relative to you. So this could just be the more research you do, the more diversified, the more diversified that, uh, the more diversified you become.
So this is not at all dispositive of anything. It's I think nicely illustrative that when we, when we do this in other sets of data, we end up finding uh, relatively similar, uh, similar results. So here we've got someone with 52 publications before Connect, 78 publications after Connect, and we'll see a greater split in the topics, a greater diversity in the topics after relative to, to before. This is not you know, evidence that I'd hang our, our my non-existent hat on, but I think it's consistent with what we find in the other uh, regression results. So, could just you just mentioned it could just be because I'm publishing more, I'm going to be in more topics, and you do have the result that they publish more post connect. Yep. Right. So if you just say like let's hold the rate constant, yeah. right, and just randomly sample the set of articles. Right. Do you see still then this shift? Yeah. Because I know I've had debates about this yeah. with other people using health and all that as the numbers change, yeah. you can mechanically yeah. get stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be a nice way to rule that out uh, as a robustness check. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Okay. Good. All right. And here's my slide where I say this paper is brought to you by the phenomenon. Congress, we're moving in, and only time will tell whether the quality is going down as a result of uh, as a result of, <laughs> as a result of Mark doing that. So the conclusion: this is not a very well put together slide, so I won't even I won't end, uh, even end up uh, relying on it too much. I think there's a, there's a number, so we, I've had a number of wonderful suggestions. It turns out I learned more than anybody else in the room uh, from, from our presentation today. Um, we have a lot to do to figure out exactly what this shock is. I think there's a bunch of things that you can do to figure out what the, the empirical results are telling us about what the shock uh, is actually doing. Hopefully it is an interesting exploration of how something affecting research costs or the automation of, of research or improvements in the ability to get data at low cost affects the breadth of projects on which uh, individual researchers work. Hope this was a good use of your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Want to hang out for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I know you have to go hard stop at 1.30. So. Yes. <laughs> I got seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> also, so, so one kind of like fun question that I've always thought about. And, uh, Old grad students go answer. This is not because of it. Maybe not there. Yeah. Is just you know because you because economists have you know a fondness for navel gazing. You know, twenty papers from economists on economists. And like one of the things that I've wondered is you know how much did the introduction of different like canned commands in SATA, pre-programmed commands actually change the things people do with papers. So here's a very concrete example. Um, synthetic controls. Here's another concrete example. Yeah. Then scatter plots. How many then scatter plots did you see prior to whenever the student at MIT who was Rob Shetty's RA produced this data program, then scatter? Right. Now, you know, I, I feel like I see them all the time. Right. And so like, yeah, stuff like this actually, you know, some of these are subtle changes, some of them are like more important. Like synthetic controls is a much more common method now than it was. Um, and there there was a period in between when the paper came out versus when the Pre-programmed pre state command came out. Right. It's like, oh yeah, when nothing available, like how much more do you see people actually using these methods? Just something to think about. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Another one that's sort of our first order example in my mind is the use of patent data after the MBER patent yeah. data. Was created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. And, and that's an area where Shane's yeah. concern is, I think, massively correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the entire field of management realized, ooh, patents are a nice indicator of innovation, and you <laughs> <laughs> well. I guess there was some insightful stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that, that's a great example. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that shock is visible in the publication record. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, I, I, I find Kiara's question still, but uh, are we observing lower cost of things? That's actually pretty fundamental here. Mm. Lower cost of things that we, it, sorry, the reduction uh, of the cost of, a, of a peas, I always like to say, mm. right, from fresh peas to frozen peas, reduces their cost. Right. But it also enables something new, which is the distribution of peas in the winter. Right. So, and which of those is the, and those are going on at the same time. So right. here you have this lower cost thing. So if we're just observing the lower cost and then we're observing things yeah. spreading out due to that, that's okay. You know, that's a model we've had for a long time. Right. <laughs> but if it's, Kiara's right, her intuition is, but because the cost was so large, it ended up enabling data collection that was previously un, you know, unobtainable, then I interpret your results very differently. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a very different way to think about it. So, uh, so yeah. Because yeah, the first one yeah. has an implication that, like, let's say that the financial resources were allocated to the people who were doing the best research. Yeah. Now right, we're right. just going down the quality and we're just curve. going down the learning curve. Right. If right. instead right. it's the second example, then you're actually, you might be actually picking up higher quality research that was actually not previously doable. Yeah. Um, and it's two different forms of value creation. Yeah. Yeah, right? That's the, yeah. right, one's sort of a producer surplus to all the previous researchers, and then you bring yeah. in a couple extras yeah. on the margin, but the second one, that's that's value creation in a very different sense, previously unobtainable. Not possible. Yeah, that's, yeah, it, it, man, more to distinguish between those two is, 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 is we'll turn the paper into a home run. <laughs> it's already a, it's already a. It's a potential. <laughs> yeah, it's already, yeah. Yeah. It could just be a seeing eye single, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's gone beyond hand-waving. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when Dan first saw it, it might be more hand-waving. Dan saw it about a year ago at this time. Excellent. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thank thanks you for again. accepting me as a substitute for Florenta. <laughs>